Good morning. Please be seated and take out your Bibles. Open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 20. If you didn't bring a Bible today, please grab one from under a seat in front of you. Acts chapter 20. We're continuing to study again the life of Paul as he travels through in his missionary journeys as he has been on. And we find ourselves on the tail end of the third missionary journey last week as we were looking at the first half or so of of chapter 20. We noted that that Paul was in Ephesus at that point, and then he went up and, and did the loop around seeing the churches that he had established before in in Thessalonica, we saw in Berea, we landed eventually in Corinth. And we spoke last time that it was Paul's desire then to leave Corinth and sail across the Mediterranean Sea back to Israel in order to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. That was his plan, but that plan was interrupted when he got word that there was a threat on his life and that, that his plans then rerouted back through the other, the other churches that he had already come and then we, we looked at that last time that he then set sail and went past Ephesus. Instead of going to Ephesus, we talked about the fact that it was probably because he knew if he went to Ephesus, he'd spend a bunch of time there. There were many churches that established he'd actually spent three years there already. And so he, he bypassed Ephesus, landed at Miletus, the beach there, and he sent for the leaders in Ephesus to come and to see him. And that's where we pick up today, kind of halfway through his discussion with these leaders, the elders, the pastors of the home churches there in Ephesus. And we'll begin looking verse by verse here at verse 25, but I want to look at verse 24 as kind of a segue in, because as you'll remember last time, Paul said, he was telling these men that met him there on the beach, He's going to Jerusalem, but he knows the Holy Spirit has been bearing witness to him everywhere he goes, that when he gets to Jerusalem, bonds, chains, afflictions await him. And yet he is in a hurry to get there. And we talked about that because he said, none of that moves me. None of that knocks me off my course. Verse 25, or verse 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. He said, guys, none of that matters to me. What might happen to me, none of that matters because what really matters to me, what I really hold precious is the fact that God would entrust this ministry to me. That he, this path that he's laid before me, that is precious to me. And that's where we pick up now, verse 25. Paul, continuing to speak to them, says, And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. We mentioned this last week. This is kind of Paul's, if you would, farewell tour as he's going back through these churches. He's, he tells them plainly right here as he's meeting with them, I will not see you guys face to face again. I'm not going to come back. We're not going to have an encounter like this again. We're not going to see each other again. And it got me thinking, if, if I knew 
that this particular meeting I might have with someone, someone close to me, someone that meant a lot to me, was the last time I would ever have an opportunity to see them face to face, would it affect what I said and how I said it? If you knew tonight that you were going to go have dinner with someone, someone very dear, precious to you, and you knew that you would never have a chance to talk with them again, would it change the content of your discussion tonight? Would it change the tone? Would you talk about today's football games? Would you talk about your plans for future vacations or, or different little things that seem to monopolize a lot of our conversation? Or would you really get down and take advantage of every minute to talk about the really important thing? Things that perhaps have eternal consequences. If this person doesn't know Jesus, would you spend that time telling him about Jesus one more time? If they were followers of Jesus, somebody you'd been maybe discipling, giving them those last pieces again, reiterating certain truths to them, would you have a kind of a nonchalant approach to it or would there be a sense of urgency? Well, Paul knows that he's not going to have this chance again. So we, as we look at the content of what he says, and notice, notice as you can see, you can sense the tone. There's a sense of urgency in it. And he begins with something rather interesting. If we just read that as, as the way it states, he says, "For I, and now I behold you, I won't see you again, therefore I testify to you this day, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Almost sounds like he's making a defense before them, doesn't it? Like he has to somehow defend himself. Just in case you think there's something here, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Guys, he's not making a defense for himself. He's leaving an example for them. He's saying, I am innocent of the blood of all men, but he goes on to say, why? Because I didn't shrink back from sharing the entire counsel of God with, with you and with all of those that I had the opportunity to share it with. What is he referring to? What is he talking about there? Well, Ezekiel speaks of this in Ezekiel 33. For I would encourage you, jot that down and read it in, a, read it in its entirety later, especially the first 20 verses speak exactly to what Paul's talking about here. I'll summarize it for the most part, but read a couple verses to you. Paul is speaking, referring to what Ezekiel says in there, where he refers to the watchman. And he says that God telling Ezekiel that he is the watchman. Now, what does a watchman do? He watches, right? Well, so he, the watchman is up on the wall, and his job is to watch out. And when the enemy comes, his job then changes from watching to warning to telling the people that, hey, there's, the enemy is coming, the enemy is approaching. And Ezekiel now, as, as the Lord is revealing this to him, God speaking to Ezekiel says this in chapter 33, verse 7. Now as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel, so you will hear a message from my mouth and give the warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked man of his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require of your hand. But if you on your part warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. That's what Paul's talking about, that he, Paul, is a watchman. He has the counsel of God, and he said, I'm free from the blood of all men because I have shared the entire counsel of God with you. 
That's why, guys, that's why it's such an important thing to me and the elders and pastors here at Calvary Chapel Surprise that we go through the Word of God verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. The entire counsel of God. Because it would be very easy to just pick and choose the easy things to talk about and the, and the good things, but we go through the entire counsel of God. I have people every once in a while, they'll thank me. Thank you for going through the verse by verse and everything. And I, you know, and, well, praise the Lord, but it's kind of self-serving too because I don't want to be guilty. <laughs> I'm going to be held accountable for that too. But bottom line, guys, if we look at it as the whole, God gives us clear warning. When we look at it as the entirety of the message, the entirety of what it is there, He does tell us that, that there are certain things that are sin. Things that, that we are not to do, things that we are to do. But we need to understand this as we go out, because guys, we're all watchmen. We, if, you, if you know the truth, we are all responsible to deliver that truth. We'll all be held accountable for that. Just like a doctor. If a doctor knew that somebody was terminally ill with a disease, yet withheld the information because he didn't want to hurt their feelings, would, he, would we not consider that person evil? Of course we would. But we need to understand something about sin. Something is not bad because it's sin. It's sin because it's bad. You see, God didn't just decide when he, when he made, the, made the world and made, made mankind that he's going to say, I'm going to give them a whole bunch of rules just to make their life miserable and to hold them accountable to those things. No, he knows because he created us. He knows what will hurt us, what will harm us, what will harm others. And that's what he says don't do. He knows what will bless us, where we will find true joy. And he says, do those things. And so with that comes then, the, with the entire counsel of that, he does tell us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but the wages of sin is death. Guys, that's, that's the truth of the message. We have to deliver that message. That has to come. Just like he told the, the, the prophet Ezekiel, you know this truth, you have to share it. You know that death awaits all people who have sinned, and that means everyone you need to warn them that that is coming. But praise the Lord, it doesn't, it doesn't stop there. Verse 11 of Ezekiel 33 says this, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die? See, the glorious thing in all of this is that God's plan involves the cure. You see, the standard is righteousness, absolute righteousness. But it's not imitated righteousness. It's not that we have Jesus' life as an example for us, written out for us in the Gospels, and then it is, all right, now follow that Imitate that, and if you do it well, if you do it perfectly, you get into heaven. See, it's not imitated righteousness, it's imputed righteousness. It's his righteousness that gets credited to our account. See, it tells us in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Him, the perfect one. The king of kings who stepped off of his throne in heaven, lived a perfect sinless life, then 
exchange that life on the cross for ours. He takes our sin upon himself and clothes us then in his righteousness so that we can stand before God righteous and blameless. See, that's the entire counsel of God. And we need to share the entire counsel of God. Going through, that's why we do it again, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, sharing the entire truth and counsel of God. Yes, all the world has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They need to know that. The world needs to know that they have a terminal disease from which there is only one cure. But praise God, there's a cure. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But there's a cure. And we have it. And we need to share it. And again, Paul says, I didn't shrink back from that. I shared the entire counsel. I went through it all. But he continues in verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Again, we see in this, because of the words that Paul uses, the sense of urgency that he has as he is sharing with them, where he says, be on guard, be on the alert. That is written in what's known as the present active imperative for those verbs. That means it is ongoing. You don't ever stop. Always. And it's a command, not a suggestion. (laughs) Always be on the alert. Be on guard. And notice, and this is important, notice it says, for yourselves and for all the flock. Now he's writing to the elders, the pastors, if you would, of these house churches in Ephesus. But guys, this is for every one of us. Because All of us are called as Christians into active duty, active ministry. None of us are called and saved as Christians to just get on the bus and and ride on into heaven. We are all called to be active in ministry. We should all be involved somewhere discipling someone else, whether it's our children, whether grandchildren, whether people that we get involved in. As we grow in our faith, we should always be sharing and working with that. And we have a responsibility in that, to be on the alert, to watch out for one another. But notice this first, and this is important. Notice it says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Notice what comes first, for yourself. Be on guard for yourself. And let me just tell you, as a pastor, oftentimes that's a difficult thing. I, we can lose sight of that. I can easily get, get caught up in, in studying and preparing, and then all of my thoughts are towards what Wednesday night and Sunday, night, Sunday morning, for the weekends and for Wednesday night. And even in my personal devotion time, before I know it, everything I'm thinking about, oh, I could use that as an illustration. I could talk about this. I, could talk. I, got, I need to be on guard for myself. I pray that often that says, God, I don't want to think about Wednesday or the weekend. What do you have for me today? How do you want to speak to me right now to continue to prepare me and to continue to work in this through me? Guys, 
the, the enemy, especially if you are actively discipling or working with others, you are a target. The enemy would love to take you out. And so we need to always be on guard. Notice, first of all, for ourselves. What we all, all of us who have ever flown in an airplane have heard a message from the flight attendants. Now, if you've flown multiple times, you don't even pay attention to what they say anymore. You don't take the headphones off. You don't, even, you don't anything, you know. But all, if, if the first time you flew, you were hanging on every word, right? As you're gripping the, the thing and you're saying, whatever they got to say, I want to hear it. They said, what do they tell you? They say, if there's a drop in cabin pressure, this little thingy's going to, I don't know the technical term, we'll go with thingy. It'll come down. <laughs> and what are you supposed to do first? Put on your own first. Sounds, it sounds, you know, well, that's kind of selfish. Well, there's a reason behind it. <laughs> so that you stay conscious, so that you can, put the, some, you can help others. Put it on first. So we need to be on guard. Be on the alert first for yourselves, but notice then also for all the flock. And that's, that's important, that word all. <laughs> all the flock. Guys, again, we are responsible as part of the flock for one another. And it says all the flock. I've pointed this out before. We're referred to as sheep often in the Bible, and it's not because we're just so cute. There's a reason we're called sheep. There's multiple reasons why we're referred to as sheep, and none of them have to do with how we look. It all has to do with a bunch of other things, primarily because there's no such thing as a wild sheep. We all need a shepherd. We all need someone to take care of us, and that being Jesus, our, our good shepherd. But when we look at this, that we're accountable to one another, all of us, all the sheep, we need to understand something about sheep. We got blemishes. We have little faults. Sheep sometimes bite. Not looking at anybody in particular. I'm scanning now. I'm not. Sheep are, ask any shepherd, sheep are high maintenance. Wandering here, going off there. Guys, as sheep, we're all imperfect. It's interesting when we look at the Old Testament law, when it spoke of the, the, the lamb that they were to bring as a sacrifice, there was one word that was used to speak of that it's without blemish, to bring a lamb without blemish. The problem was there's never been a lamb without a blemish. Step one. As John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. There's only been one perfect lamb, and that's Jesus. All the other sacrificial lambs ever offered as sacrifice all pointed to him, but they, were all, they, they all had at least one freckle somewhere. <laughs> all imperfect except one, and that one perfect one gave his life, shed his blood. As it tells us here in, in our text, he purchased with his own blood Guys, we all belong to Him. We're all a part of the church of God purchased with Christ's own blood. We are so precious to Him that He poured out His own blood to purchase us. Now one little note before we, we move on and look at the, the next part of what he's, what he's saying here, because this is a little important thing to kind of file away in your memory. Because people will say, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that Jesus is God. 
which is crazy. It says it all over the place. But here it says it, you can't argue. Even if somebody shows up at your door and says, yeah, we, well, we believe that Jesus, Jesus died on the cross. We believe that. We believe that Jesus shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, but Jesus is not God. you got to take them to verse 28 because we, if, Jesus, if Jesus shed his blood for us, what does it say in verse 28? It says, God, which he purchased with his own blood. <laughs> Guys, Jesus is God. And it clearly tells us that here in verse 28. Well, Paul is giving them a warning, right? He's saying be on guard, be on the lookout. And he gives specifically a couple of things that we are to be looking out for. First, he speaks of those from outside the church who might want to come into the church and cause problems, steal sheep. And he calls them wolves. Well, oftentimes wolves in sheep's clothing, even pretending to be. But there's a greater problem, I believe, that Paul's addressing here in the second part. And how, how it must have grieved him to be talking with these elders and saying, you know, there will be some from even among you who are going to rise up in the church. And notice he says, pervert, distort, twist, and lead people away. Now, we just said, are they, are they leading? Will, will these people who rise up Will they lead people away from Paul? No. Whose church is it? It's Jesus' church. So he's saying that the, their motivation is to draw people away from Jesus to follow themselves. And the method that they use is to speak perverse things. Again, that literally means distorted things or twisted things. They'll take the Word of God sounding righteous, but twisting it, changing it. And again, their motivation is to draw people after themselves. Taking advantage of the sheep. Taking advantage of human nature. Paul says as he writes to Timothy, there's going to come a time when people will not, will not stand for sound doctrine. Won't put up with the Word of God as it is, as teaching through it. They won't put up with that. They want to have their ears tickled. Paul's saying with that is they want to hear what they want to hear. Tell me it's okay to continue in my lifestyle and I can go to heaven. Tell me it's okay that I can live however I want to live, do whatever I want to do, and I'm still good with God. Tell me that. And Paul says, there's going to be plenty of people that are willing to do that. There's going to be plenty. And Paul even says, and get how, much, how it must have broke his heart knowing as the Holy Spirit revealed to him that some of you are going to do that that you're going to tell them whatever they want to hear just so they'll follow after you. Paul says, be on the alert. And again, those are in the present active imperative. That means, again, always on the alert. We can't take any time off from that. Again, another reason why it's so important to study the entire counsel of God from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, going through it all so that we can spot it whenever somebody is distorting it or twisting it. Well, Paul, after giving them this warning, notice verse 32, it says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Commend. That's an important word to understand and embrace here because that's what all of this, this entire verse is speaking of. Commend. It means to entrust. 
It's interesting, as I did a little word search on this, it kind of took me through where we're going to go right now. It's the same word that Luke uses to tell us one of the phrases that Jesus said on the cross. The same word that when Jesus hung on the cross and He says, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. I, I entrust to You My Spirit, Father. Jesus said on the cross. Now, you might not know this, but Jesus, when He said that, was quoting Psalm 31. And so, I want to read the first five verses to you of Psalm 31 because it speaks all about trusting God. It says, Psalm 31, verse 1, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me, rescue me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. You will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. The psalmist is saying, in you I trust. I've entrusted my life, my spirit, all that I am to you. You're my rock. You're my fortress. You're my protection. You're my provision. Regardless of what happens, regardless of what others try to do to me, I trust you. Let me ask a question. Doesn't that just make sense? Let's, let's take a look at God for a second. All-powerful. There is nothing that He cannot do. He is sovereign. He is in control of all things. He can radically, totally, completely change the course of anything at any moment. He's in complete control. He is all-knowing. Not just past and present. He knows the future. He knows what lies ahead. He cannot make a mistake. He cannot. Not that He will not. Not that He chooses not. He cannot, by His very nature, do anything evil. He loves us so much he displayed his love that while we were yet sinners, sent his very son to die for us. What, what response? What response makes sense other than to trust God with everything? The one who's all-powerful, all-knowing, can't make a mistake, and loves me beyond anything I can compare to. Doesn't that just make sense? <laughs> Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That I'm, so, I'm confident of this. He began this good work. He's going to complete it. We can trust him in all of that. But notice he says in this, and, we, and we, I guess before we look at it, we understand, Paul, Paul has demonstrated that, has he not? We looked at that last week, again, in great detail. He says, I don't consider my life valuable to me. I don't consider it dear or precious to me. 
I trust everything to God and the plan that he has before me. So Paul has done that. Paul has completely trusted. But that's not what he says here in verse 32. He says, I commend you to God. He's already displayed that he trusts God with his own life. He's now saying, I trust God with you. And let me ask you, parents, grandparents, perhaps even children, if your parents aren't saved or have gone a wrong direction, somebody that you have somebody close... Isn't it sometimes harder to trust God with them than it is with our, with our own lives? Where we, we somehow, we can, we probably, I, I heard a whole bunch of uh-huh, uh-huh, amen while I was just talking about trusting God with our own lives. But all of a sudden now when it becomes trusting God with our children, when they've gone a wrong direction or grandchildren, all of a sudden it's, yeah, okay, God, yeah, but, but I'll jump in and do it here. I'll, I'll, I'll take care, I'll protect, I'll pick up, I'll do this, I'll navigate, I'll drive. Doesn't it make sense to trust that same all-knowing, all-powerful, can't-make-a-mistake, loves them more than we love them, God, with their lives? We looked at the story of Manasseh on Wednesday night. I encourage you, if you'd would like, you could check out the teaching from this weekend. We looked at the story of Manasseh on Wednesday night. And just real quick summary of that. Manasseh's father, Hezekiah, was the godliest king that ever ruled in Judah. Manasseh, tells us, was the most wicked king that ever ruled in Judah. We see a man who had everything, knew, understood, understood how great God is, completely turn away. Tells us, though, that the Assyrians came and took Manasseh prisoner and took him back to Babylon and put him in prison. And the text seems to indicate that they transferred him like they transferred most of their prisoners. Took a big old hook, stuck it in his jaw, and drug him along and threw him in prison. But it was there in prison that he humbled himself and he came to God. And God restored a relationship with him. God, it tells us that, that God heard his prayer and responded to his prayer. Took him back out of prison, restored him as king in, in Jerusalem, and he got, a, got rid of all of the idol worship then. Looking at it then, isn't it all worth it? All of that pain and suffering to go through as long as at the end, he came to God. And I know as a parent myself, Sometimes the hardest prayer to pray is, God, whatever it takes. But we need to pray that prayer and then trust that God is going to do what only God can do. Well, he says, I entrust you to, notice, to God and to the word of his grace. Again, there's that word again, grace. The word of his grace, it's all about the grace of God giving what we don't deserve, but I'm entrusting you not only to that all-powerful, all-knowing, can't-make-a-mistake-loves-you-beyond-what-you-can-imagine God, but also to His Word. The Word that you and I hold. 
the word that you and I need to be in, and we've talked about studying and absorbing and, and allowing it to penetrate our very lives, because notice, it says that it's able to build you up. It's able to be that foundation for us, that, that place that we can go to. Paul refers to this as the living Word of God that is God, literally God-breathed, and it's able to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness, to make us equipped for everything that lies before us, which, by the way, God has already ordained for us that we would just simply walk in them, but our preparation comes through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word in our lives. Notice also, not just, not just that it's able to build us up, but to give you an inheritance. Paul spoke of that inheritance again last week, the crown of righteousness that awaits us. But guys, this inheritance that is there, Peter refers to it as imperishable, undefiled, that it will not fade away, and that it's reserved in heaven for us. It never loses value. It's not affected by the stock market or the housing market or anything like that. And it's reserved. God doesn't cancel his reservations either. Reserved in heaven for us. Well, he continues, verse 33, as he continues to speak to these men that are gathered there on the beach in Miletus. He said, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Maybe some of you thought that that was just a catchy saying, just a catchy slogan. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And it, usually you say that when you're about to receive something or, you know. Well, these are the very words of Jesus. Paul tells us that it's Jesus himself who said that. It's not just some cute saying. These are the words of the Lord Jesus. Now, interesting, they are not recorded anywhere else in Scripture. They are not in the Gospels anywhere. But Paul tells us here that Jesus himself, the words, more blessed to give than to receive. When we studied through the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 5, the Beatitudes, Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, he shared with the, those that gathered there that he said, blessed are you if, and he went through several things after that, blessing, joy, Joy that can't be matched of any other place. Jesus says, you want this? You want to be truly blessed? You're blessed if you're poor in spirit. You're blessed if you mourn. You're blessed if you're gentle. You're blessed if you're merciful. You're blessed if you're a peacemaker. You're blessed if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, because it's only in that that you will be satisfied. Jesus went through all of this list of things that if you truly want to be blessed, these are the things that you'll do. And by the way, they fly in the face of what the world says. In complete opposition, the world stands on the other side of that. No, 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 no. If you want to be blessed, man, it's got to be all about you. You got to, you got to go for it all. It doesn't matter who you step on. It doesn't, da, da, da. The bottom line is, everyone who's ever done that knows there's no blessing there. Jesus said, you truly want to be blessed? This is what you do. And Paul says, Jesus also said, there's a beatitude that was missing from the, the, the record there in Matthew. He says, you want to be more blessed? Give instead of receiving. And it's not just the action. We pointed out, it's the beatitude. <laughs> not just the action, it's the attitude behind the action. It's that attitude that says, I have already been so blessed. 
God has given me so much and it's my desire to just pour out blessing on others. I want to be a blessing broker. God gives me the blessing. I just pass it on. And here's a little secret, guys. You can't outgive God. You can't. And I'm not just talking, I'm not talking financially or just materially, with your time, with your talents, whatever it is that God blesses you with, you can't outgive Him. Try it. It's actually kind of fun to try because you can't. It just keeps coming from different directions. And then the more that you pour out blessing, the more God chooses to use you to continue to bless. And in that, comes more blessing. I mean, it's just an amazing thing. Well, Paul wraps up what he was speaking with and sharing with them. And again, notice, it's interesting to me, this is, this is important, important stuff because again, Paul realizes, I'm never going to see these guys again. So these are, these are kind of the, the checklist of, man, I got I to make sure we cover this stuff. And such great, such great teaching in here. But Verse 36, it says, When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. So Paul, tying this together, tying it all up, and they're grieving over this. They love Paul. Paul loves them knowing that this will be the last time that they will see each other. It's a very emotional time. But notice it says that they gathered together, they knelt down together, and they prayed together. And it doesn't record for us the content of their prayer. It doesn't tell us what they prayed, but we could probably deduce some things if we just kind of think through that. And we know who Paul is and the kind of man that Paul was. In all of the letters that he wrote, he would, he would mention how he continually prayed for them. All the time he was praying for them. And so no doubt, as they gathered together there, they prayed for the church as a whole. They prayed for the work of God that was going out and as the gospel continued to spread and these new churches were starting up, that they were, no doubt that they were praying for them. And guys, that needs to be a part of our time together in prayer. And I'll just take this as a, as an opportunity, as Pastor Don did earlier, to invite you to come back tonight at 6 o'clock for our monthly prayer meeting. It's a wonderful time of worship and prayer together as we go before the Lord together. And guys, when we do pray, we need to be praying for the church around the world. We need to be praying for those who, instead of like us right here this morning, openly, freely gathering together, playing worship loud, singing, singing out, doing it like this with the lights on. There are brothers and sisters of ours in Christ around the world who are meeting in secret in small groups because if they were found out, their very lives are in in danger. We need to be praying for them. Paul, I believe, no doubt, asked for those, those people that were there, those elders, those leaders, to be praying for him. He knows what lies ahead. He knows what's there. As a matter of fact, he writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So there it is, be praying for all the saints all around. But notice he says, and pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth 
to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul says, pray for me as I continue my ministry, that I would be bold, that I would, that I would share, that I wouldn't hold anything back. And if Paul's not too proud to ask for prayer, I'm certainly not too proud to ask for prayer. I covet your prayers. Pastor Brad, Pastor Don, we, we covet your prayers as elders, leaders in the church. We need you to be praying for us. I know many of you do, and many of you share that, that we pray for you daily. I feel that covering, and I appreciate it. Pray for us. Pray for the leaders in the church. Pray for the deacon. Pray for my wife. Pray for, pray for Celeste in children's ministry and the ministry workers there. Pray for Eddie over in youth and the youth leaders there. As leaders, again, I mentioned it earlier, the enemy would love to take us out. Be praying for us. No doubt also they prayed for their, their little churches back home, back in Ephesus. We mentioned house to house. We talked about that. They probably had these house churches throughout and these elders, they were probably pastors of these smaller churches that came to meet with Paul. No doubt praying for them. Praying for each other. Guys, that needs to be a regular part of our prayer life too. Pray for one another. Again, we're responsible for each other. We need to be praying for each other. That God would strengthen us and, and encourage us. You know, it's interesting. We know that these elders, they went back to their churches back in Ephesus with these warnings that Paul had given them to be on the lookout, to be alert, to not to, end, to fall for false teaching. And we know that they were diligent in that and they were successful in that. How do we know? Well, from the very words of Jesus. See, it says in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus speaking to John on the island of Patmos. He says, Jesus speaking to John, to the angel or the pastor of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you have found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. So from the very lips of Jesus, he commends the church in Ephesus we're following what Paul said and following their warning and sticking to that. Verse 4 though, Jesus speaking, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. They got so focused on that that they lost sight of Jesus. They got so focused on, on that work and those types of things that they lost the love. The love that they have for Jesus. Understanding the love that He had for them and, and the, to, to share that. So he says, remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Challenge to us to follow these, these exhortations that Paul gives here and, and the Holy Spirit no doubt resonating within us because we can never lose sight that our focus needs to stay on Jesus, the one who shed his blood for us. Amen? Would you please stand with me?
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious truth that is in your word, and we thank you for preserving it. We thank you for giving it to us. We know that as we study it, as we go through it, your, your entire counsel, your, your plan, your purpose for us, as we study your word, we are given everything that we need. We have that, that foundation, that training in righteousness. Lord, that's our desire to follow after you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that as your church, as your bride, that we were redeemed, that we were purchased out of our terminal illness, out of our death sentence because of sin in our lives, you redeemed us. You have clothed us in your righteousness. We stand before you blameless because of what you did for us. We are so thankful. If you're here today and you've never taken that step to make Jesus Lord of your life, you've never, you've never repented of your sin and turned to him and received the free gift of, of salvation, which he has for you, it's simply a matter of responding in your heart to the Holy Spirit and praying along these lines. You just say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I have fallen short of your holy, perfect standard. I know I can't fix it. I know I can't change that. I need a savior in Jesus. I believe you died to save me. I believe you gave your life in exchange for mine. So right now I ask that you would take my sin and give me your righteousness. That I would know that I have eternal life. It's my desire to follow after you. Lord Jesus, again, we thank you for that gift that you've given to us. And Lord, as we step forward from this moment, Lord, we trust you. We trust you with our lives. You, the all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing, one who loves us so much you gave your life for us, we trust you. But Lord, we also trust you with those in our lives that have wandered away from you or don't know you, our children, our grandchildren, our friends, family. Lord, we, we ask that you would give us wisdom as to do what you would call us to do, but Lord, we trust you with everything else that you would, that you would draw them to you, whatever it takes. And Lord, we now spend this time as we close out this time together this morning in worship of you for all that you are. Again, we thank you and praise you.